Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running a record label. Thank you so much for being a listener and following along with all the different types of episodes we've had. We've had some industry insider episodes. We also just launched a new monthly series called Case Studies. If you haven't heard that yet, go back one episode and check it out. Um, And of course, our uh, interview episodes are rolling along with some incredible labels coming up over the next couple of episodes, including today's episode with Car Park Records, one of the founders, Todd Hyman. It's, it's such an exciting uh, label to have on the show. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. Be sure to, whether at whatever stage you're in, and, and I hear from so many different people um, via email, which I love. Thank you so much for reaching out to me or, or the DMs on Instagram. Uh, and, and hearing these incredible stories of, of artists who are starting their own label to support their career or or the careers of their, their peers. Um, or I, I hear people who have been running a label for a decade or more and uh, who have found the show to be helpful and, and, and who have downloaded some of our resources. Please go to otherrecordlabels.com. Right there on the main page, we have all of our resources, um, including our record label toolkit and our free guide and, and our checklist and, and a bunch of templates. And there's some more exciting things coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm excited for you to, to get your hands on that. Enjoy today's episode. I, I, I want to start out, I want to ask you, um, I often find that people who start record labels, um, obviously they're music fans, but they often have some sort of skill or passion that most musicians or music fans don't have. Like there's something either, I don't know if it's like a business mind or maybe even if it's just something like they work at a pressing plant and have access to something. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, are, are you able to identify what it was for you that gave you the desire or, or the confidence to, to start a record label? Mm, well, I guess, uh, you know, I, as a teenager and young adult, I was uh, kind of uh, really into like, you know, music that wasn't as popular, I guess, for lack of a better word, okay. you know, it was kind of like people didn't really call it indie music then and sure. alternative music seemed like a weird catch-all phrase that didn't make any sense. Yeah. But, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I don't know, when I was growing up in the, mid to late eighties, I was into like, you know, REM and the Smiths and New Order and yeah. that kind of stuff yeah. and Fugazi. And anyway, um, so then I you know, went to college in the early to mid nineties and worked at college radio. I was in the Chicago area and I went to Northwestern and we had like a really big college radio station. I think it was like 7,000 Watts or something like it could reach wow. it covered like, you know, the entire, the entire North side of Chicago, like from like, downtown all the way you know all the way up to almost to the wisconsin border so it had a really big reach and it was i think very influential and i was really heavily involved with that and i was the rock music director for two years there and um i think that was instrumental in um kind of bringing me to where i am today in, in terms of you know getting my foot in the door in terms of like, you know, I talked to radio promoters who were trying to promote their records with, a with college radio and, um, and then just kind of like the, the taste making aspect of it where, you know, I 
was my responsibility to add records to the radio station and determine, you know, what kind of music was appropriate for our station and what music I liked and thought was appropriate for the station. Um, so I think that kind of like the, those years doing that gave mm -hmm. me, um, the skills, I guess, or the, the practice to yeah. kind of like figure out like what kind of music was more popular than others and what, what qualities about certain songs, you know, resonated with people more than others. And so you've always had that, so I, that kind of passion to, to find underappreciated music and make sure people appreciate it. Yeah. Something like that. And, um, um, what was the other thing I was, Oh, you know, and, and so, you know, like I was kind of interested in, I like the idea had entered my mind after college, like to start a record label, but I kind of like, kept talking myself out of it because I was like, well, you know, like I'm, I'm such like a, a rabid consumer of music. And, you know, I, I, I would always like mind to like different things and I would never really kind of like stick with one kind of music for any particular type of time. Yeah. Any particular length of time. So I was like, well, you know, I'm going to start this label and then I'm going to put out this kind of music. And then like a couple years later, I'm going to be tired of it. So why should I start a record label, you know? Um, so, so what was your answer um, to that? Kinda, uh, well, so, you know, I just kind of like was trying to figure something else out. You know, I was like, Oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a job in the music industry doing like, I don't know, radio promotion or something mm -hmm. like that. Or I worked in some record stores for a while and then I, I went to a graduate program about popular music for a while. And I was like, well, maybe I'll, be a writer, uh, a scholar or something. But, you know, then I, you know, I finally, I moved back again to New York in the late nineties and, um, you know, I was working at this, uh, a friend's record store and we had this like DJ night and I was, we were bringing in these live acts that were just kind of starting out. And I was like, well, this seems, I'm not sure what I want to do with my life still, but this seems like a good opportunity to start a record label if there ever was one. So, um, you know, I kind of like asked a few of the people that I had met through this DJ night and, you know, started a record label and put out their music and that's kind of how things got started. And this was, okay, so you guys are at 21 years now, is that right? Or 22? Uh, yeah, I guess, well, I mean... Technically, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's almost 22 now, but yeah, we're 20, 20, or 21, 21st yeah. year, I think. So no, I think it was, I read online, it was 1999 when you were doing this? Yeah, I think the first release was November of 99. Okay, so, so kind of paint the picture for us, because I remember 99, early 2000s, and there was, you know, for an independent artist, um, and, and I'm not sure for an independent label, but. I found that there was so much gatekeeping back then. Most retail happened in malls and in chains. Um, there was no streaming or digital. So even making CDs was super expensive. What was it like? How did you overcome any gatekeepers or, or even uh, financial obstacles back then? Oh, yeah, it was definitely an interesting time. I think uh, Napster was just, was just, just like gotten going. Right. And so like there was this, kind of like this like Wild West free for all mentality with like people who had, you know, fast Internet connections. Uh, just like people were just like downloading music <laughs> yeah. for free. And um, 
you know, so we kind of entered like as like things were about to collapse seemingly. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I had spent a couple years before that I'd worked in like some record stores in Manhattan and you know, I was a music buyer at one of them. And I, uh, so I was like placing orders and stuff and I, and just from working in college radio and I, I was familiar with a lot of the distributors, you know, though those gatekeepers. So when I started the label, I knew where to send my music to to get distributed. And, uh, it was a little nerve wracking at first. Cause you know, I didn't know if anyone was going to place an order and I didn't, I didn't really like, I didn't know any of them, but I yeah. just knew the companies. So I would, you know, I sent the stuff and then, you know, there were still faxes going around at that time. And yeah. I remember, you know, I was just kind of waiting and you know, the order, the orders were faxed in on my computer and, uh, you know, kind of just did it all out of my apartment. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I just, it was, it was very DIY back then. I, you know, I just sent the records to distributors and then, you know, I had another friend who had a label who had like a press list and he was nice enough to share it with me. And, you oh, know, nice. I had, uh, you know, from my years of college radio, I knew, you know, all the decent radio stations. And so I just made up a list of like a hundred stations that I would send promos to and, did you have any, um, sorry to interrupt, did you have any label support or mentorship at the time? I mean, today you could go on Reddit and you could go on Facebook groups and, and talk to other indie labels. Did you have anything like that at the time? I mean, if there was, I <clears throat> I wasn't participating in them. I mean, I was <laughs> I was in Manhattan and, um, you know, I knew there were lots, you know, lots of music industry people around that I knew and you know, there were people I could ask questions to, you know, to if I had any. Um, but, you know, I guess I just felt like I had enough background on my own that I could do most of it on my own. So that's yeah, I mean, what that, I did, I guess. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's a great, that is a really great start. I mean, you know, with your background at college radio and, and in a retail store, I mean, that really covers a lot of, of some of the early questions, especially back then, that people would have had. It would have been about distribution. It would have been about radio, maybe manufacturing. So for you to have experienced that in in some of your jobs, that probably gave you a, a, a pretty good head start. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I just, you know, always going out and, you know, I kind of like knew most of the people who worked at most of the major indie labels back then, or I knew at least one or two people back in those days. Um, so, you know, it's a fairly small group of people at the end of the, end of the day. Uh, what were the, like, what were some of the challenges back then? Like what, what, what were things that, that weren't necessarily going as you had expected when you first started out? Mm, I don't know if the, I could answer that specifically. I mean, mm. You know, obviously, I wanted to sell as many copies of the music that I put out as possible, so that was obviously the big, the biggest challenge. Or you know, I just just kind of like you know, learning as I go and trying to figuring things out. And um, you know, distribution, I guess, was a real big issue back then. More you know, more so than now, because you know, you could just find a company and. They'll upload music for you for a small cut or whatever, but 
you know, back then it's like either you had distribution or you didn't. And it was much more of a gatekeeping situation where, you know, you had to kind of persuade a company to distribute your music, you know? Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, and what kind of what were they was, looking for? What what kind of metrics were they looking for? Were they looking for touring or how would they uh, why would they trust a new label like you? Uh yeah, I don't I don't really I never asked them that question. I mean, I, I, I there was a bit of a calculation in some way like I didn't want it to be too overthought, but you know, like when I started the label, it was just like experimental like IDM kind of electronic label. Oh, okay. And um the first release was the Jake Mandel place kick EP. And, you know, I guess broadly speaking, most people probably hadn't heard of Jake Mandel, but like in like the sort of, uh, circles of the, of like IDM and whatnot back then, like he already had a record out and was kind of like a known commodity. So I thought, you know, I was putting on his EP that, yeah, a little bit of a name so that would, it wouldn't be like I was just putting out something that no one had knew, putting out something that no one had heard about. So that would help me get, I guess, some orders. And then I kind of linked it up with this other record by uh, Mara Mari, which was like our second release. And that was really, I mean, except for something he put out himself, that was really his first release. So I guess I was just figuring if I did that. And then I, you know, I, I had a, yeah, I did a Kid 606 EP. That was like the sixth thing we released. And so I was kind of thinking, you know, like he's kind of a known commodity. So I was kind of like trying to balance things out between like things that had themes and things that were just starting out. And mm. um, yeah, I just kind of, yeah, it was really just, uh, yeah, I just sent the stuff to like Forced Exposure and Carrot Top and Revolver and uh, just waited and hoped that they would order it basically is right. what happened I think. Um, we're kind of hopping all over the place but that's okay I, I you talked a little bit about um, you know genres when, when we were beginning and, and looking at your roster now things seem pretty diverse and, and pretty eclectic is although a lot of labels who start out today they say we're going to represent this genre what are your thoughts on on that have you ever thought, there's a type of music or, or even just a, a type of artist that we want to represent. Um, you know, and, and what do you think of that? And if you were starting a label today, would you do something uh, exclusively under one genre? Uh, probably not. I mean, uh, when we first started, we were pretty much like a one genre kind of label. It was like, like when I started, I was like, this is going to be like an, a, a kind of like a weird electronic digital mm -hmm. kind of label and you know the first you know for the first few years it was it, it was all you know like computer based um digital software kind of sounding all electronic music and then um because that's when i started the label I, that's that was my belief i thought you know labels needed to have like something to like attach themselves to oh, their, I see. Okay. like a story or something mm -hmm. like they, you know, they needed a sound or whatever. But then like after a few years, I guess I was personally getting a little tired of that sound mm -hmm. and was losing interest in that kind of music and didn't think it was, you know, when I first started, I thought it was going to really be like 
the future of like what was going on, like kind of like a new indie rock kind of thing. Right, right. And it didn't, it never really kind of took off in that way. And so I was like, well, I, you know, I don't want to stop the label, but I don't want to keep putting out this kind of music. So I'm just going to maybe gently go into this other area where it's kind of electronic, but there's like some other acoustic elements involved. And that way, you know, my, my thinking at the time was like, oh, that way I won't, won't like alienate too many people or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but that's right. I don't know. But so, so then I did, I did that for a few years and then that didn't really seem to be going anywhere either. And then, um, um, me and my wife, we moved down to the DC area from New York in 2005. And I started, um, hanging out a lot in Baltimore and there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, like the Wham city, uh, crew was going and, yeah, you know, I, I met Beach House and Dan Deacon, and there was just like this whole whole group of people doing sure. really interesting things musically, uh, visual art, um, any any kind of creative process you could imagine, and um, and so that was kind of at that point where I was like, you know what, like I don't think I don't think people really care that much if you know Car Park is an electronic label or not, and. I guess I don't really care too any m- <laughs> much anymore. And <clears throat> I don't know why, you know, like, I don't know why I kept this thing going the way I did for so long, but you know, event, you know, by the time I moved down to Maryland and DC, I was just like, I'm just going to put out whatever I want yeah, and um, not worry about it. Well, so well, um, that was happened. It's funny that you had that foresight, even back before you started the label that you may get sick of, the genre that you're you're committing to and I think that's really funny because today a lot of entrepreneurs don't have that foresight to think what I'm super excited and all consumed with right now may not be how I feel in in one month or 5 years or 10 years from now that's I think that's really wise to have that foresight um because I know if I were to start a label again now I would probably pick some sort of micro genre that I was obsessed with but you know, no doubt that would change in a couple of years. Yeah. But then I did it anyway, and then I got tired of it anyway. <laughs> exactly. So. But, so you knew yourself well. Now, <laughs> I read, it, you guys were doing vinyl back in the early 2000s. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, from the very get-go, we were doing vinyl. I mean, the, the very first release did, was a CD-only release, but okay. the second release, which came out in 1999, was vinyl and CD and most, you know, all of our major releases always had vinyl and CD and I was coming, you know, starting from this like, uh, IDM electronic, whatever background. Yeah. And I was, I was a uh, really into DJing in New York at the time we had, you know, we did, I was DJing at least probably once or twice a week. And, mm. you know, I also was really into like how, you know, deep house and sure. techno and all kinds of other stuff. And so I just coming from that, that, background i uh, at the time i was you know vinyl seemed very important right and, you know i was i you know i'm was a I was a rabid vinyl collector too i had thousands of records and um so i just it was always just kind of like part of what i was doing and i never really never even really occurred to me just to, to not do vinyl for for our big titles you know and so it just came from the culture around the genre at the time yeah, I mean, all through the '90s, you know, whether it was like indie rock or dance music, you know, like I've I've always been buying vinyl. Like I don't buy much vinyl these days anymore, but 
um, back then it was definitely, definitely seemed like, uh, you know, a good way to kind of, I don't know if like proving your authenticity is, is the way to go, but yeah. you know, it just definitely seemed like, uh, you know, to be taken seriously, at least in my opinion, you needed to have vinyl for a record. And what was it? What was the reception like from uh, from record stores or distributors with vinyl? I mean, would they they have had a, a dedicated section for like twelve inches for for house music and that kind of stuff, or you know, because I, I would have imagined that most of them would have been just racks of CDs. No, well, I mean, I, I guess it depends on who you're talking to, but yeah. you know, like living in New York City when I did, like most of the stores that I would go to had, you know, one side was CDs and the other side was vinyl. So, um, it was always, it was always there. Um, no, that's great. And you know, the, 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 the house music and the the dance music distributors were different. Like I didn't really work much with those, but even, you know, like the forced exposures and revolvers and those kind of companies, they, they, they sold a lot of vinyl back then as well. And what was the, do you remember what the the turnaround times were if you were pressing vinyl back then? Uh, I think you know it's yeah it's just uh, funny to think about now, but yeah, <laughs> I think it was we probably worked like two or three months lead time then, right? And you know now we're doing like six. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah. you brought up the Napster, and, and I'm I'm curious, just sort of my own you know obsession, but. Th- when you're living through this time, starting a record label in 99, and then, um, you know, as the iPod comes out and iTunes uh, came out, what was your perception of that um, back then? Uh, when that came onto the scene and you had to make that decision, do we, you know, upload our, our music to, to these, you know, paid digital platforms? What did you think about that at the time? Do we upload our music to, are you talking about like, well, iTunes I guess now? iTunes would be, yeah, I mean, probably the first primary legitimate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was all for it. So there was definitely, you know, there was like a few years there in between where it was just kind of like out of control and kind mm-hmm. of like you put these records out and then you just saw people like just swapping them around online yeah. and whatnot. And, yeah. Um, or one, like one of our artists, Mara Mari, he always tried to take advantage of it. He was always on Napster and he would like, he would type in like, you know, Mara Mari versus Brian Eno or Mara Mari versus Stereolab. Yeah. So like people who were searching for those artists would find his songs, you know, and he would use it for self-promotion That's basically. Great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely like those early 2000s was like, everything you know like things change quickly now but sure. you know, definitely it feels like the changes then were kind of like more impactful and longer lasting you know going from like napster to like trying to get people to pay for stuff and then you know there was like all that whole like period where records were like leaking and yep. becoming they were yeah. like news items and <laughs> yeah it was just like really insane and like then you know there were the we had kind of like the switchover, like we would do some things on CDs and LPs and then like smaller things at the beginning of our, we started, we would do things on CD, but then it kind of switched over to where and we were doing just final releases. So just a lot of. Is it, 
stuff changing. You know, as things still change today, is it hard for a record label who's been around for a while to adapt to a changing industry, or is it easier when when you have a, a solid foundation? Well, I think it's not too bad. I mean, you know, like we've been around for a while, and uh, you know, if the changes come, we, you know, just do our research and decide if they, if those, some of those changes should be part of our operations. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's easier or more difficult, but I mean, we're pretty, pretty small staff, so you know, we can we're pretty adaptable and. We can change pretty quickly, I, I would say, more so than like a bigger label. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you, I've, I've talked to a few labels about the their growth or evolution over time, and, and I've heard this a few times. Maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I want to ask it anyway, is that sometimes there's this moment that a label can identify where the label finds its groove or it just, something really clicks. Um, and... and and you know, I, I've I've been doing things on my own for ten years, and I and I sometimes still feel like I'm waiting for something just to click. But I'm and and some labels they find it in their first year. Do you remember a moment in the past twenty years where, with the label, you know, um, you just realized this is working, this clicked. You know, maybe there was something that that the fans responded to really well. Is there something that you can put your finger on? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a few different eras of like, kind of, I don't know, explosive or incredible growth. Maybe would mm. would be a good way to put it. But like, the first one was probably back in like 2006 or seven, where we just had this insane period of like a year where we where we put out like the first Beach House record, Dan Deacon's Spider-Man of the Rings, and, like, Panda Bear Person Pitch. And it's right. like, wow, it's just, like, <laughs> so insane. Like, you know, like, huge records for us. And it was, and it was like, just me at that time. Like, I wow. was the only one. I mean, my, we had, like, publicists and radio promoters that I hired, but, like, there was no staff or anything. It was, it was like, me behind the computer, like, all day. Fancy, you know, like, like, emails, like, coming in like every two or three seconds basically. And like, I couldn't even like go out for like an hour or two. Wow. There was just like so much going on. And so that was like a really crazy time. And then I think maybe another crazy time would be kind of like around 2010 or 11, you know, when we started working with Toro et moi and cloud nothings and yeah, we did, yeah. you know, another Panda bear record. Um, so just, that was kind of like the, yeah, the, the the chill wave, whatever. Sure. Era. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What makes a record sell well? I mean, over twenty one years, have you found a, any common denominator that that, uh, that successful records share? Maybe not uh, sell selling well is is the wrong term. I mean, that's a byproduct of of a great record. But is there any common denominators that you've seen? Well, yeah, just uh, have to have a great song that uh, you've written is basically what it comes down to at the end of the day doesn't you know whether it's rock or mm -hmm. pop or country or whatever like it's got to be a good song you know, kind of how i look at it sure that's fair 
<laughs> when like leading into that with 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 A and R and finding new artists, I mean, is that is that what guides you? It's the the songwriting process, or do do you have some sort of criteria? Well, I guess it's maybe like an unwritten criteria. I mean, I try and work uh, in terms of finding artists, kind of like at a real visceral level. Just like, you know, if I put it on and it resonates with me, like, really quickly, like, that's that's something, you know, like, I don't know, I have to have, like, kind of like an immediate positive reaction. And, you know, that thankfully, well, thankfully or unthankfully, but I guess thankfully it doesn't happen too often. So I know that when I hear something that I like, you know, like, I know that I really like it because it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Oh, that's so, a good point. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, like, you know, I guess it happens maybe one, two or three times a year, I would maybe say. So, um, you know, it's, and it's hard to articulate, but you know, I like really, I tend to gravitate towards, you know, catchy songs that, you know, have kind of like humble choruses and stuff. And, you know, there's like a whole kind of like, subgenre of indie music that you know it doesn't i don't i didn't i never quite understood it but there's this whole like genre of music where people write songs and they're like incredibly popular but like there's like nothing there's nothing catchy about it or nothing to latch onto it for me but like people still like it so that's you know like it's kind of like meandering indie rock thing so <laughs> that's not my thing i guess <laughs> yeah no that's a really anyway. interesting point how you can trust your gut you know trust your subconscious to make these decisions for you which is which is not um you know which is based upon you know uh, an entire lifetime of listening to music so i I think that's a really wise thing and i would say the same thing happens to me where um when if i'm hearing two or three records a day just out in the world it's so few in a year that actually just you know cause me to stop everything and I need to hear it a hundred times. So yeah. it's so wise to say like that you can really trust that uh, that signal. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, it takes me back to like when I was college music director and like, like you know, it was like the mid, early to mid nineties. There was like post Nirvana gold rush. And like we were getting sent so like hundreds of records, literally a week. Wow. And like, I, I would, I would have to like, you know, sit there for hours like on the weekends to like try and figure out what we should add and I you know have to like put a seven inch on the record and like I would basically have to like kind of figure out within like 10 seconds whether it was like decent or not because I, I didn't have time to listen <laughs> yeah. to like a hundred records you know yeah so but you can but that's totally fair and I and I I can do that too I, I feel like listening to five to ten seconds of a song can give you a pretty good idea and chances are you're you're going to be right whether you like it or not yeah. So and then you know, then you had a bunch of other external cues, like if it's like a good record label, does the album cover look any good? Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. Oh, sure. Do they have other records out? So that kind of stuff too. But I I want to yeah. ask you about so, and the same same works with the, same works today, but in, in different ways. Yeah. 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 Um, I I want to ask you about other revenue streams. Um, you know, our audience, uh, our listeners are, um record label owners and people thinking about starting a record label for the most part, uh, also independent artists. But, um, 
you know, a lot of us, a lot of labels I've talked to have found success in, you know, obviously you have a foundation of selling physical records and, and if you can have some success with streaming, that's great. Um, but it's also the uh, alternative revenue streams or the additional revenue streams. Do you have any advice on where uh, smaller labels should be looking to, to bring in more income for their label? Uh, well, we, you know, uh, traditionally we, we would make a good amount of money with licensing. It's a very important part of our business. Sure. Unfortunately, it's been a bit slow the past year because there hasn't been as much production going on. Right, right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely after, you know, streaming, I would say is kind of like our second biggest source of, of income. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, important to have people doing that kind of work for you who are on the same page as you and understand the music that you're putting out and have the same goals as you. Um, so whether that's you know someone that you're paying on salary or whether you work with a company that takes a cut, right. a third-party company, um, yeah, because it's just, it's like anything you know in the music industry. If you're not seeing eye to eye with anyone, you know that's it's not, not going to really work out. Yeah. So you know whether it's a manager or a sync license person or a radio promoter, you know, yeah, all, they have to understand each other. So we're we're sure. lucky that we work with people that I think understand us, and so it works out pretty well for us. Um. On on you know on that note, I, I think I saw you guys have released instrumental versions of, of some of your releases. I've done that too. I think it's great, and I I love it as a fan. Um, and it it must be a, a great way to amortize production costs. I mean, is that something you guys might do more of, or what was some of the the process thought process involved with that? Mm. I think I know. Uh, Chaz from Toro put out some yeah. instrumentals on tape on his own. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think we didn't, we didn't really have much to do with that. He just kind of, Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, but, um, I think it's a great idea, but yeah, definitely. We're definitely, yeah, we're definitely uh, looking into like new ways to kind of make additional products available, you know, like the, with the past, year we've we've sold like so much more direct sales like through our website yeah. and our bandcamp site yeah. so we've just been kind of trying to come up with ideas just to make more kind of like exclusive products just to you know a to you know people bring bring things to people that they want so they haven't been able to get yeah. and you know also uh you know gives us more money because uh, not as much money is coming in. Sure. So I've I've heard that that you know the pandemic has driven a lot of um, online sales for some labels, which is I think is fantastic. I mean, I've heard that from quite a few labels that um, you know things may have been pretty quiet in the first month or so, but then um, as the lockdown kind of um, hung on for a couple of months, that that people started buying records. I think that's fantastic. That's such a great byproduct of all this. Yeah, I mean, like I was looking at our PayPal monthly sales and like from like January or February last year to like March and April, it just, it went up like fourfold, you know, so. <laughs> That's amazing. It's just insane. And 
Yeah. yeah, we're just trying to. I'm I'm doing all the mail order myself now, which is something I haven't done in a few years. Oh, okay. Because we, we don't we don't have anyone in the office, so. Oh, okay. Wow. Been, been my weekends. Yeah. Doing a lot <laughs> yeah. of mail order. Oh man, I I just I feel like I'm I'm like a hundred years behind the times, but I just figured out our Canadian online shipping platform. I mean, for so long I've been taking stuff to the post office and creating this huge line behind me and pissing off everyone. And it was just such oh, a yeah. terrible process. But now I think it was our, our Canadian post has figured out like has a, just a more intuitive system online, but it's like a dream come true. Yeah. It, uh, that reminds me of, uh, you know, when I first started car park and when I was living in New York city and I don't think any of that existed, any online stuff existed. And I, I basically, when I had lots of mail, I would literally put it in like the biggest suitcase I had with wheels, <laughs> and I would just car- I would cart it over like you know, like a ten minute walk to the post office. And, <laughs> and the you know the New York post offices are just the worst. They're all like really small, and there's like tons of people who are using them. So you just I would like, and any time I had to go to the post office, it was like at least an hour of my life. Yeah, is, like gone, you know. <laughs> But so, so now it's great. I have, you know, a label, a laser writer printer here that prints out labels and I've got the software Oh, great! and I just like print everything out. And then I just, you know, go to the web, the USPS website and create a, a, a pickup for the next day. And I just dump it all out on the front porch and someone comes and picks it up. Oh, so what like a that dream. Post office. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the dream so, will be when fans can 3d print their own records at home but soon you know but for now it's <laughs> that's as good as it can get uh well, yeah. talk to me about the subsidiary labels um how how that works and how those came to be uh well they first started uh, out of my desire as i was talking about earlier about how i was getting tired of yeah. <laughs> putting out like digital idea music so i was like well you know at that point you know with my thinking at that point i was like well car park i have to put out i can't put out like all these other kinds of music on car park because this is an electronic label so how do i do that i have to start on another label yeah so um you know i um they just kind of like i don't know if i was like intentionally trying to start a label but like you know there's a kind of certain situations arose where it just kind of like made sense and i kind of and i pursued it so you know i I was friends with the animal collective guys living in New York city. Mm. And, you know, there was like, when they first started, they, they didn't really call themselves animal collective. They, or they didn't want to necessarily. They wanted to be this kind of like looser kind of group, uh, groupings of players. And, you know, so if like, you know, Dave and Noah played, it was Evie, Jerry and Panda bear. Mm. And if it was Dave and Noah and Brian, it was, it was, you know, panda bear, avitar and panda bear and geologist. And that was how the shows were built. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was a little confusing for your average consumer. And yeah. so I was like, well, guys, well, why don't we start this label where you can like put all your stuff out and people know it's like animal collective without like you having to like call yourselves animal collective or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were into that idea. So that's kind of like how all tracks started. Um, and then, uh, Acute Records, I think, I guess, was maybe started before Paw Tracks, or it got off the ground sooner. Um, I was um, at the time I lived around the corner from this bar called Plant, and every I think it was Monday nights they had this like post punk night where this uh, 
this dude Dan Selzy used to DJ and spin like all kinds of crazy post-punk stuff and um so I would go there and I think uh the the writer Simon Reynolds was there and I was kind of friendly with him and he introduced me to Dan because he was like oh Dan's looking to reissue this theoretical girls record and thought maybe the two of you would you know want to talk about it or something so we started talking and that's kind of like how acute started because you know Dan had a bunch of stuff he wanted to reissue and I he didn't really have much experience like doing the business side of it so I was like well you know I I have experience getting the records out and I, I also was really into post-punk stuff as well so that was part of the appeal because we, we both share the, the same interest and passion for sure. that kind of music um so we that that's kind of how Keith started and we kind of went at, went like that for many years with like those car park acute and paw tracks and you were still running everything it was still just you though essentially like the back end yeah yeah i mean i didn't hire i hired my first employee and the like end beginning of 2011 end of 2010 i think mm. Cause I was about to, my wife was about to have our first child and I was like, well, there's no way I'm yeah. going to be able to do this the way I'm doing it with a baby, you know, like yeah. I'm going to be like exhausted. So, um, so yeah. And then, you know, those pod tracks kind of faded. I forget exactly. Sometime like in the 2015, 16 area, I think I'd guess. And then acute kind of, uh, Dan, um, that kind of stopped a few years ago as well. So, and then we, we started up uh, a couple other sub labels since then. We, we've started uh, company records with Chaz from Tori Moi and Wax Nine with Sadie from BDRTs. Hmm. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, I, I've always thought about that too. I think, you know, even just if it's just a doing business as a name, but everything in the back end, background is the same, it's kind of cool to to start fresh and to kind of give a, a micro label its own identity. I like that. Yeah. I, I'm, I was thinking when I was doing some research about cloud, nothings who I love, um, tell me about the, I was going back at how, how long that they've been with the label. <clears throat> tell me about the benefits of investing in artists over the long term. I mean, I mean, um, these guys just came up with a new album and, and I, I mean, I think that their first album with you was in 2010. Is that right? It, yeah, around then. It, it, there must be something rewarding about, um, you know, being with uh, an artist for for that long. Yeah, I mean, I I wish our, none of our artists would ever leave us. Yeah, you know, I like <laughs> I like I like keeping them around and uh, you know just developing the relationship and being friends with them and watching their. <laughs> artistic career grow and develop. Um, it's just very rewarding just to be a part of that process. And, you know, like just to, you know, like for Dylan from Cloud Nothings, like to go from, you know, like 18 or 19 years old to 28 or 29 years old is just like a, a lot happens in those years. Sure. Just to see him become who he is now has been very, uh, very rewarding and you know i'm always very grateful when artists you know stick around you know we work really hard for artists and and uh it's always nice when they when you know that they see that and appreciate it and want to stick around yeah 
if you could, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you could give young up and coming record labels one piece of advice, what would it be? I know that's a, a huge question. <laughs> I know you've got 21 uh, years of experience, but I'm just thinking from our, our listeners' perspective, um, um, is there something, if, if you could tell them one thing, what, what advice would you give them? Gosh, well, I mean, having a little bit of money always helps. Um, <laughs> and because, um, you know, I think, well, I mean, I guess if you're first starting, you, maybe it's cool to like just put out a few records on your own just to see what happens and see what it's like. But I guess if you're, you know, if you're wanting to run, if you're wanting to start a label that's like an actual business that sustains itself and makes money, um, yeah, I guess you really need to do it right in quotes. And so if you, you know, want to do it right, you need, you know, someone who knows what they're doing on like the publicity and on the radio end and on like the distribution end and marketing. So it's just, if you know those things already or whether you can hire someone to do that for you, it, I think would help though, you know, then there's, there's also the, the issue of like, you know, if you're just starting out, you're probably putting out records by people that no one's known, heard about. So that makes it very difficult on a label that no one's heard about. So it's, you know, it's obviously a huge, huge number of hurdles that you would have to, you have to jump over to get to like this sort of like point of recognition and respectability. And, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's very hard. So it's hard to, you know, sure. advice is, it's hard to, to do that, but um, well, you know, I guess yeah. Just following on my, sorry. No, no. I was just what kind of what you said kind of inspired me, like uh, uh, to get thinking about you know, a lot of us, especially because it's so easy. Um, there's so few barriers these days to just release one record. Um, it's it's easy to do that. Um, but it, it is hard to make that switch from doing it right. Like you said, quote unquote, like it, it's, uh, it's almost, uh, best to do that from the very beginning, because for me, I had the hard time of when do I switch over from this being just silly and fun, uh, and not necessarily taking it serious to, you know, I, I should probably start taking this serious. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, like I said before, when I first started, I was kind of doing everything myself and I think it, it worked for uh, a certain amount of time to a certain extent, you know, like I was, you know, fortunate that I was, you know, living in New York city and like, I actually knew a lot of the writers who mm. were writing about the kind of music that we were write about. So it wasn't like that much of a stretch. Like I, I, you know, I could get like reviews and spin or rolling stone because like i actually knew people who oh. did those jobs right. you know um but then you know i guess to get like kind of like the next level up you know you, you is kind of where i would probably f falter you know like i wouldn't be able to like get cover stories very well or bigger features and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff and i think uh when we did panda bear young prayer on Tracks. It was the second Tracks release. It was like 2004, I think. That was that was the first time I hired a publicist. Oh, okay. So that was that was you know sure. five years yeah. before I hired a publicist. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I think oh. that's probably a, a similar story with other labels. 
Todd, this has been fun. Thank you so much for doing this and 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 sharing your uh, experiences over the past uh, 21 or so years. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, man. Anytime. Thank you all for listening. Go to carparkrecords.com to support that label. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Todd. Please go to our website, uh, otherrecordlabels.com. Um, I don't know when the last time you were there. I don't know when the last time you were visiting. I update it uh, at least a few times a week, um, adding some new features and some new things to help record labels. So please go to otherrecordlabels.com to see what's new. Thank you for being a listener. <laughs>